Hello, and welcome back to Elder Sign, a weird fiction podcast by Clay Temple Media. I'm Glenn McDormand. And I'm Brandon Buddha. In this episode, we'll be talking about Joe R. Lansdale's 1994 story, Baba Hotep. This is a story that was nominated to our Elder Sign ballot by one of our Patreon supporters. And then, of course, the rest of the Patreon supporters voted for it. And I want to say a huge thanks to the supporter who told us to do this story, who nominated this for the ballot. I think neither of us would ever have thought to cover this story without a supporter telling us that we should. Uh, And I'll say, too, generally just to other listeners that Hey, if you would like to nudge us in a particular direction, or if you've got a favorite story that you've been hoping we'll cover, you can make us do that by purchasing a nomination from us. And of course, you get free nominations at some levels on Patreon. So if you're interested in that, check us out on patreon.com slash Media. And actually, if you join us on Patreon right now, you will be just in time for this month's bonus episode, which is on Thomas Ligotti's really creepy story, Cocoons. That was a great story. I really, really liked Cocoons. Uh, but yeah, Baba Hotep is uh, a story I've been curious about for a long time because I had seen the movie, uh, knew it was based on a story, and then it just kind of fell out of my head. And so uh, this was a really great opportunity to kind of revisit both the story uh, for, for the first time. And then I rewatched the film as well. We'll talk about that a little bit. But it was not like I remembered it being. It kind of, uh, uh, I don't know, shocked my sensibilities a little little bit. We'll, we'll talk about that as we get deeper into the story and the discussion for sure. But yeah, Glenn, why don't you get us going? Yeah, we need to do a little bit of setup before we get into the plot. Uh, first, right? Everyone knows that Elvis Presley died in 1977. What this story presupposes is maybe he didn't. <laughs> so the story is set contemporary to its writing, which is to say it is set in the 1990s. And what we have then is an Elvis who is now an old man living in a nursing home. We'll say more about that in a moment, but I do want to note something about the text here. A major theme of this story is aging, uh, becoming old and feeling useless and also feeling left behind by younger people. We're definitely going to talk about that in the discussion. But I want to say before we get into this story that Lansdale uses a recurring motif for this theme. And that recurring motif is the healthy functioning or, or lack thereof of Elvis Presley's genitals. And Lansdale tells the story from really the the close perspective of Elvis. And Lansdale imagines Elvis as a rather crass person. And so this motif then is also full of profanity. And uh, really one way to think of it is that Lansdale is writing about old age as if it's a kind of uh, body horror, which is brilliant, I will say, but it is still crass. And so what I'm getting at is that We're going to ignore all of that. We are not going to use that language. We probably won't spend any more time than this on that motif. So it's a big element of the story that I'm I'm not going to include in the the recap here. But uh, uh, with that said, let's uh, let's get to the story. And the deal here is complicated. This is not an alternate history in which Elvis didn't die. What's happened is that Elvis was tired of his life, and so he traded places with an Elvis impersonator so that he, the real Elvis, could just go live a a normal life. But then that impersonator died, and now the real Elvis cannot convince anyone that he really is the real Elvis. And uh, it's a great setup. It's totally complicated and just bonkers, but it's awesome. Yeah, it's a great setup, a great setup. I mean, the opening paragraph is of the sort that will immediately inform you whether or not the rest of the story will be to your taste. It is crass, as you put it, Glenn. It's scatological, even. Most of the metaphors in this story involve the processes and horrors that take place or, uh, I don't know, abide below the belt. And to be honest, this isn't to my taste as a reader, but it it, it really did raise some questions for me about uh, taste in general, about what writing appeals to me in horror and what doesn't that we're going to consider in the discussion, even though, as you said, Glenn, we're not going to spend a ton of time on uh, the crassness of this story in the recap or in my commentary. But I will mention actually one more motif that is crucial and and central to the story besides Elvis's uh, concerns about his, uh, I don't know, sexual vitality. And and this is Elvis's fear of the afterlife. And he's 
concerned about what might be the case or what might happen if the afterlife is as he thinks it is. If the afterlife requires that his soul goes through a sewer in order to get to some kind of, I don't know, scatological heaven? You know, what if your essence just ends up in some kind of cosmic toilet bowl? What if the heaven is a kingdom made of the waste of our lives? And this is a fair fear, I think. It's actually a pretty powerful metaphor to consider the afterlife to be made of the ragged bits of us and our loved ones, the things we wasted instead of the things that we cultivated. Though I think this is an image that is more associated typically with hell. And so this is some food for thought, I think, about where Elvis's state of mind is, about how depressed he feels, about how wasted he feels his life is, maybe. And I mention this motif because, one, as I said, it comes up time and time again, but it also has to do with the way that the monster of the story functions as a metaphor and why Elvis is motivated to defeat the monster when he finds out just how the monster functions. Yeah, I think that Lansdale does a great job in this story of getting at at least two of the really important things that are are happening as you are aging and approaching death. And one of them is the lamentation about the failure of your own body. And then the other one is the fear of what's next. And they're packaged here in a like Lovecraftian horror story that I, you know, is just not something I ever would have thought to do. So it's it's genius. And of course we'll unpack more of this in the discussion. And and also, you know, we need to get to what some of these elements are. So I'll turn this back here to the the, the narrative. So yeah, Elvis is in a nursing home in East Texas and he's spending a lot of time reflecting on the general suckiness of his life, or at least, you know, his current life here in this nursing home. And this place is pretty miserable. Uh, He doesn't even have his own room. And indeed, as the story opens, his roommate has just died. And that roommate's daughter is here now to collect his stuff, her father's stuff. And Elvis says that she's never visited him. And now she's throwing away his few possessions, including his Purple Heart medal. And the nurses don't treat Elvis very well either. I mean, they aren't like maltreating him. They just don't take him seriously. Uh, Part of that, to be fair, is because he keeps telling them that he's Elvis and they all know that Elvis is dead. But Lansdale, I do think here, does some really excellent work to show us the way that people between 20 and 50 treat the elderly really like their children again. And it is a bit horrifying from the perspective of someone who's trapped here. And like, you know, many stories, often I read them and they make me scared about something in the world for, you know, a few days after that. And this story definitely did that to me. It made me very scared to ever go in a nursing home. This business with the Purple Heart really got to me. This is a a genuine concern of mine. Like, I don't have a Purple Heart and I'm not worried that somebody will throw it away. But the sentiment, you know, is a genuine concern of mine about aging, that I think I've been carrying with me since I was in my early 20s. And I think that Lansdale captures it beautifully. You know, this character here, uh, this this character who has died, Elvis's roommate, is someone that we barely know because Elvis isn't particularly close with him. But Elvis knows that some things represent a person's life or their values or their sacrifices in really important ways. And to see it all thrown into a waste can to not even be cared about too much by your loved ones, that they don't even want a memento from you, to just be thought of as an inconvenience in your last days. This, to me, is is at the heart of a real cultural tragedy that, I don't know, we, we all probably will live through if we live to old age, and uh, maybe we're guilty of perpetuating at times ourselves. And I think what Lansdale captures so well here, even through the lens of Elvis's highly eroticized thoughts, is the idea that maybe there comes a point in your life where you just cease to be a person to others. You know, It's not quite about not being a threat or not being dangerous, which is something that Elvis struggles with. It's that you exist as a series of tasks for another person. Your life and your achievements amount to nothing as you become more of a job or an inconvenience to those around you. It's soul-sucking. And while that metaphor 
also becomes real in this story via the monster's actions, that's a connection that Lansdale doesn't draw as explicitly as he does some other metaphorical connections. But uh, still, I think it works beautifully. It does. It really does here. And yeah, this business with the Purple Heart, I think, is an excellent way to to package all of that sentiment in just really one nutshell right but for us you know those of us who don't have purple hearts or this that sort of 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 tangible memento of something heroic something important that we've done in our life nonetheless i think can feel like Someday we are going to face the fact that things that have really meant a lot to us in our lives, have seemed important to us in our lives, are not going to be treated that way by people we we know, right? And in this case, this also becomes emblematic of a poor relationship that this this person had with his his daughter. And you know, as a, a parent of a young child, like this is a real fear that I have. You know, that like we have this awesome relationship now, but what will it be like when we're older? And yeah, I you know, Lansdale is able to work on all of that, all of these fears that are inside me without even talking about them. And uh, that's expertly done. It really is. Uh, I want to I wanna think about this section as well from the perspective of exposition, because we get a bunch of it here. We get a bunch of Elvis's backstory uh, in this scene that you've just recapped. You know, Elvis is trying to remind his nurse that he's really Elvis, maybe in order to impress himself upon his roommate's daughter. But here's what happened. Basically, Elvis and this guy, Sebastian Half, switched lives, which you've pointed out, Glenn. They wrote up a contract. Sebastian died. Elvis continued on being an Elvis impersonator and at some point fell off the stage, resulting in an infection in his hip that led to some serious complications, including a coma. Uh, And then at some point, this contract had burned up in a trailer fire. And so there's really no one left to verify that the real Elvis is the real Elvis. And what Lansdale is playing with here, and we'll, we'll talk about this in the discussion a little bit, is the way that Elvis sightings were a fixture in tabloids in the 80s and 90s, though those sorts of things don't really exist today anymore for us. Yeah, I'm looking forward to taking a little trip down memory lane there in the discussion. (laughs) But we should probably get to the supernatural horror part of this story as well. So yeah, Elvis, he doesn't sleep that well. And so one night he hears a strange sound in the nursing home and he decides to investigate. Now, he does not find the source of the sound, but he does find one of his fellow inmates down on the floor, not looking very well. And we should say that this person goes by Jack because he claims to be John F. Kennedy, who also didn't really die. Though in this case, there's uh, uh, there's some stuff about a brain in a jar and some body swapping. It's infinitely more complicated than the already complicated bit with how Elvis is actually Elvis, <laughs> even though everyone knows Elvis is dead. And we are not, we the readers, we are not meant to believe that this person is JFK, even while Lansdale has just been treating Elvis as Elvis. But you know, maybe we should be questioning the veracity of the Elvis story as well. We can take that up in the discussion too. But all right, so Jack is down on the floor, and this is the inciting incident for the the supernatural horror story. So Jack is down on the floor. He's been attacked by somebody or maybe something. Uh, Right now, it's, it's not clear who or what. But later, Jack discovers some Egyptian hieroglyphics in a bathroom. And uh, it turns out that Elvis had, and I'm just quoting here, Elvis had once been a fanatic reader of ancient and esoteric lore, like the Egyptian Book of the Dead and the complete works of H.P. Lovecraft. Uh, Jack, it turns out, is into his own kind of esoteric knowledge and has read a book called The Everyday Man or Woman's Book of the Soul by David Webb. And Jack now believes that what attacked him is an ancient Egyptian mummy that is stealing the souls of patients in the nursing home. And this is a great cover, right? The nursing home, because these people are all near death. And so if you suck the life out of them and they die, people will just call it old age and they won't investigate these deaths. Elvis is incredulous here, but then they hear the noise again. And indeed, it is an ancient Egyptian mummy walking around the nursing home at night, uh, also wearing a cowboy hat so it can fit in. And this part of the story, I mean, this is pretty awesome. Uh, Lansdale mixes up humor and also some really awesome 
horror descriptions that I, I just don't feel like I can do justice to. Yeah, this is the strongest element of the story for me. A lot of the crass facade that we talked about at the top of the show more or less fades away during these more horror moments. Though, I mean, the horror itself is rooted in toilet humor, but... You know, Elvis is mostly worried, as I said, that his fear of the afterlife will become a reality when he starts investigating this mummy business because it turns out that mummies have to go to the bathroom too, just like us, and they like to graffiti the walls as much as the next guy. And when mummies go to the bathroom, they evacuate the waste produced by the souls they've consumed. So, I mean, like, what remains of Elvis, if he doesn't get his act together right now, really will be a waste byproduct that ends up in a real sewer, not even an idealized form of a heavenly sewer. And uh, he doesn't want that. Nobody wants that. <laughs> but I, I do <laughs> want to read this scene here because, Glenn, you're talking, you're talking about how strong this prose is. So am I. Um, where Elvis looks outside of this doorway and confronts the mummy, who we learn has just fed on another resident. As the thing came even with the doorway, the hall lights went dim and sputtered. Twisting about the apparition, like pet crows, were flutters of shadows. The thing walked and stumbled, shuffled and flowed. Its legs moved like Elvis's own, meaning not too good. And yet, there was something about its locomotion that was impossible to identify. Stiff, but ghostly smooth. It was dressed in nasty-looking jeans, a black shirt and a black cowboy hat that came down so low it covered where the thing's eyebrows should be. It wore large cowboy boots with the toes curled up, and there came from the thing a kind of mixed stench, a compost pile of mud, rotting leaves, resin, spoiled fruit, dry dust, and gassy sewage. That's such a great, great horror passage. So evocative, so descriptive. Yeah, Lansdale's descriptions are are awesome here. I mean, I did make a, a big point at the beginning of the episode of saying we weren't going to get into the crass language that he's using. But one of the things that happens with the type of crass language that Lansdale is using is that he is really, really focused on the visceralness of the experiences that Elvis is happening, whether it's about parts of his body not working very well or or other things, it sets him up, it cues him up, right, to be paying attention to really all of the senses as he's experiencing the the supernatural horror. And that leads to a really, really great description that puts us in this place, makes this monster feel very real to us and then gives us the tension of this scene, makes us feel the the horror and also the disgust that Elvis is feeling in this moment. This is really, I think, one of the best drawn monsters that we've encountered in a long time. I really love the way Lansdale handles the mummy here. And, and we're going to dig into this in the discussion as well, because what is a mummy but a very old person with power, right? And that's a big sort of element of what's going on in this story. And and at this point, Elvis hasn't scared off the mummy. Instead, the roommate of the person um, who has just been drained and killed comes out of the room in, in like a Lone Ranger mask and pops off a cap gun trying to chase the mummy away. So we see these like sparks of life start to emerge from uh, the people in this rest home, uh, as they are realizing they, they, they're not ready to die yet. And I think, Glenn, you know, as this relates to your question about whether Jack is really JFK or, or whether Elvis is Elvis, here we have another resident that we're introduced to that's dressing in disguise. This choice feels really intentional to me. And, and we should think about what it communicates about the principal characters in the story as well. Yeah, there's going to be a lot for us to unpack when we get to the discussion. And we are near the end of the story now. So we are rapidly approaching that discussion because at this point, we know what is happening. But of course, we also now want to know why. We want to know how an ancient Egyptian mummy got here to East Texas in the first place. And it turns out that there was a museum heist, right? Just a classic <laughs> plot, museum heist. Uh, some hoodlums stole a mummy from a traveling museum exhibit, but they did it on a wickedly stormy night. And the hoodlums ran their van off a bridge, and then they and the van and also the mummy were swept away and left at the bottom of the nearby river. 
But recently, the mummy has become dislodged, and now it is out looking for food, and it's found it. Indeed, it has been getting some of Elvis and Jack's co-residents of this nursing home. And obviously, right now, it is up to the aging Elvis and also the aging and body-swapped JFK to stop this mummy. And they do. They hatch a pretty complicated plan to isolate the mummy and then burn it, which they do execute, though, of course, doesn't actually go as they have planned it. And indeed, a big chunk of this story is really devoted to this final action sequence, which is, is quite gripping, even though I'm, I'm blowing through it rather quickly here. Jack dies in the fight, and this leaves Elvis then to carry on the fight alone. And although he does succeed, and he knows that he has, and also knows that he has saved the people of this nursing home, nonetheless, the last line of the story is, Elvis closed his eyes and did not open them again. Yeah, none of our principal cast members' souls end up in a toilet and... That's a big relief here. That's it's a huge in, relief. <laughs> in, the, in the world of this story. And Elvis really puts up a great fight. And the fight scene is full of these little and, and realistic mistakes and issues of coordination. And then ultimate triumph. It's an extremely well-written and well-paced uh, action scene. Leading up to the fight, though, there's suggestions in the text that what is really troubling Elvis, what bothers a lot of the elderly people in the home, is that they've been... And diminished in some way, mostly by the way people respond to them being in old age. And Elvis thinks about this as he becomes more willful, as he realizes he can still serve a purpose. He still can go out with, with a big sense of meaning. And one of the things we see Elvis doing, especially with Jack is try to preserve the dignity of the other men around him. You know, one thing he does is cover Jack up after he's attacked for the first time. He keeps the purple heart and tries to maybe in some ways confront his roommate's daughter about how carelessly she's throwing the objects of her father away, the meaningful objects. But Elvis also spends a lot of time objectifying all the women around him. And so there's this really heartwarming, but strange element to this story where Elvis becomes heroic, but he's still kind of awful. And I wonder what you made of that, Glenn. You know, is there a kind of brotherhood, a fraternal mindset that dominates Elvis's unconscious mind here in the story? Or I don't know, what did you make of these scenes of the, of the contrast between wanting to preserve the dignity of these men when also taken with the way that Elvis thinks of women? This is not, I think, uh, a sympathetic portrayal of Elvis. And maybe something I should say up front is that I am not an Elvis person. Uh, you know, Elvis is a huge pop culture phenomenon, certainly of my parents' generation. And uh, I guess, you know, people a little bit older than my, well, definitely a little bit older than my parents for sure. But uh, I don't know about Elvis. I've heard a lot of Elvis music. In fact, I, we can talk about our relationship with Elvis music later in the discussion, but I don't know about the drama of his personal life. The generation that I'm in, the drama about Presley personal life was about Lisa Marie Presley marrying Michael Jackson. Like that was the stuff that I was seeing in tabloids in the grocery store when I was a kid and so on. And so I just don't know about Elvis's personal life and how he was regarded by the media. But I think that a lot of what's happening here, a lot of what Lansdale is doing here is playing with that, playing with the persona of Elvis for people who were into Elvis as a kind of pop culture figure, right? Someone who, I guess for for us, I don't know, this is probably not even who's important now, but like, you know, reality TV type people or something like that. So I have a real sense here that Lansdale then is trying to preserve a particular way of viewing Elvis as something of a, a, a womanizer and perhaps a particularly egregious womanizer at that, someone who has uh, wronged Priscilla. And so Lansdale is maybe taking a side in a particular discourse, pop culture discourse about Elvis's personal life that I'm just not really a part of. But still, nonetheless, you know, from my perspective, just as someone who has read this story, I definitely will say that Elvis does this heroic thing. I mean, he sacrifices himself to save these people. But yeah, he is not not good to the women at, at this nursing home. And 
it is gendered here in that all of the caretakers that we meet are women, but there is also perhaps something of, of class going on here as well, right? That he he's also just maltreating people who work in the service industry. And maybe that also is something you know that is a commentary here about Elvis, uh, how he operated on tour or in his later years in Vegas or something like that. So there is maybe something that Lansdale is doing where he's showing us that People can do heroic things and, in fact, be heroes and still also be jerks to lots of people in their lives. Yeah, it's a really interesting way to approach this character of Alvis. I mean, who died in in an extremely you know undignified way on the toilet? And I think that's what Lansdale's playing with. He's playing with so much of the iconic imagery of Elvis here. We even get him, you know, putting on a, a, a final costume to kind of have one last ride, so to speak. Um, and, and really almost treating it like a, a bit of a sacrilege in a sense for those who have this sense of Elvis as, uh, you know, an icon in that, in that almost religious sense of the word. This actually isn't where I wanted to start the discussion, Glenn, but it's <laughs> it's right there as a feature of the text. And there's just so many questions I have about this story because this story is really outside of the range of my typical taste. So it's really brought up a lot of thoughts that I don't often have when I'm reading. You know, the story kind of stretched me in a, in a strange way. Uh, I should really ask the question of whether or not this style of this story is to your taste as well, just so that we can get a sense of the way that taste can affect the reading of a story. And, uh, you know, I'm sure our response to the style that this story is told in will reflect our reading of it as we get deeper into the question. But before I ask you any questions for the discussion proper, maybe we should define taste here briefly, because I don't think we've ever done that on the show. But One of the reasons that I go to a story or many people go to stories or people get enjoyment from a story is for its aesthetic pleasure, the way that a story might use poetic techniques or conceits, the way that it will uh, be the result of the writer's mind as an act of craft. The style of the syntax is really important, the way the words are put together in sentences, so when I say something isn't to my taste, it's it's not a moral judgment or even an objective judgment. I'm just saying here that as a reader, something got in the way of my aesthetic enjoyment of the story. So for instance, I could say that reading about cancerous lesions on genitals of supposedly long dead rock stars is something that gets in the way of my aesthetic pleasure of reading a story, even a horror story. And others might find the humor here genuinely funny and provocative. And that's great. So I want to make that super clear up front because I found that there's real technical and craft mastery at play in this story. I think, you know, the readers who are listeners who heard me read that passage heard just the the poetic language there, uh, the rhythm of the the speech of the writing that Lansdale has put into the story. And we're going to talk about some of this stuff as we continue. But now, Glenn, you have to answer the question about taste here. What did this story do for you? Well, I could just quote what you said, and it would be the same answer. This story was not to to my taste. It's too profane, too crass. Just generally, if something is described as edgy, I know that that's probably not going to be for me. But of course, that is going to be for lots of people. In fact, I think when people are saying something is edgy, they usually mean to be paying it a compliment. Uh, but for me, it's usually a, a warning sign to stay away. And and as you said, that is just taste. It, uh, in fact, I think I think there is a real technical mastery at work in this story. Nonetheless, the aesthetics of this story didn't really appeal to me. But hey, this cuts both ways. There have been many stories that you and I have gushed about on the show. And then listeners who are not reading along, who haven't ever read the story before, will go and read that story and uh, let us know that they they are not gushing about it. They did not <laughs> they did not like it. It was not to their taste, right? It's just something that cuts both ways. I think that we tend to prefer either we both really love a story, it really is to our taste, or at least one of us does and then we can fight about it. I think neither of us really enjoying the aesthetic of a story is not a place we like to be. It is where we are in this story. That's going to happen from time to time. Totally. And it's not a big deal. But 
because it's so outside of the norm for us on the show, we are going to dig a little bit more into some abstract aesthetic questions. But before we do that, let's actually talk about the story. So we're going to return to this topic and the way it relates to the story. The first question I'd like to bring up that is like a story question has to do with the identity of the characters. This is just one of the many hooks that this story has. The question of, did Elvis really die? Are the conspiracies about JFK true? Really what Lansdale is doing here is digging into the tabloid culture of the early 90s and thinking about these American icons as they would be in old age instead of as these kind of ghostly figures you know, as blurry as Bigfoot, barely being caught on, on camera or something like that. And I think that Lansdale really expects the audience to bring that really contemporary to the writing of the story context to the story, but he doesn't provide it. So the real question then is who's who here? Is everyone who they say they are? Is Lansdale just having a laugh? Are some people not who they say they are? How does the Lone Ranger factor into all of this? In other words, what is going on with identity and old age in this story? I find it difficult to believe that the uh, Jack Kennedy character in this story is actually Jack Kennedy, because this one requires some science fiction elements that are not you know, we don't find elsewhere in the world of this story, right? There's science fiction elements that simply don't exist, technology that doesn't exist in the real world, whereas everything else that's happening in the story could happen in the real world. I mean, not the mummy stuff, right? But that's that's mystical horror stuff that's happening, and it's a mystical horror story, right? It's a supernatural horror story. So for, for me, I had trouble accepting the literalness of that. But I easily bought into the idea that, that, that our protagonist, our main character of the story really is Elvis Presley and that all this complex stuff about swapping places with somebody was true. But I'm a little uncomfortable with having one of them really be the famous person they say they are and the other one not. I kind of want it to be the same answer for for each of them. But I guess, how, how do you feel about it, Brandon? Yeah, I feel the same way. I feel like it has to be both or none. And the text plays with this idea. There's times where Elvis questions whether he's not actually been damaged in this accident and he's really Sebastian Half and he's made this kind of mistake about his identity. And part of it just has to be with being isolated and people treating him, uh, you know, as I said before, like a chore. And so ultimately, you know, while this question is toyed with in the text, I, I wonder if what Lansdale isn't getting at more is the way that accidents in old age, um, falling down, breaking an, an, a hip, um, you know, having money that people are waiting on, as is the case with, John, you know, the John F. Kennedy character in the story, the way these types of things being treated in these ways can strip you of your identity. And so you cling to something uh, familiar and contemporary to the height of your life uh, when you were at the highest point, maybe professionally or uh, in a relationship or something like that personally. And so I think that one thing that Lansdale is doing is examining the way that one, we can be really patronizing to elderly people about the stories of their lives and their identities. And two, I don't know, maybe he's also saying, well, what's the harm in listening to someone, even if you know it's not true? Like you, their their life is still their life, you know? Um, I don't know. It's really complicated. This story is really complicated in a lot of ways. Yeah, I don't think that there's a lot at stake, uh, you know, of whether or not we believe that Elvis is Elvis and JFK is JFK here. I mean, it, it's a fun question to play around with. I raised it in the, the recap. It's a, a fun thing to chew on. But I think that the answer, you know, no, no answer that we come up with is going to undermine any of the themes or motifs, right? They work whether or not Elvis is really Elvis or JFK is really JFK because there is something uh, primal, something fundamental about the human experience of aging that Lansdale is writing about. So none of the the, the background details about these characters are going to change anything about the experience of aging in and, and the experience of this nursing home. Exactly. Yeah. And that, that goes to kind of the next thematic question I want to examine here, which is another theme in the story is the fear that old age will rob 
even those we think of as great of their dignity as they age and need extra care or live in care homes or what have you. This is a, a real, maybe a cultural problem that uh, Lansdale's looking at and playing with. So considering this theme as another way into the story, these people being robbed of their kind of uh, dignity, their life force in some sense, how does the mummy work as a metaphor? This is a story where the monster is clearly a metaphor, right? Made real. Uh, how did it work for you in this story? And kind of how does it work logistically or, or on a craft level of the story? Yeah, I love this monster. I think for me, this is the best element of the story. And of course, one of the things that's great about it is that Lansdale doesn't show us the monster for quite a long time. We get some clues, we build up to it. All of that stuff is awesome. But this is, I mean, this is classic monster writing in which the monster is the theme or motif of the story made literally manifest, right? That the fear that Elvis in particular is having in this story is about aging, about, you know, what it is like to, to get old, and then also what is going to happen to him when he dies. And so, as you pointed out in the recap, the monster is a literal manifestation of those fears, right? The, the mummy is just a really old person who uh, is still walking around. I mean, it's a dead person, right? But who is still walking around. And so, does two things. One shows a kind of interminable existence that requires preying on, leeching on other people in order to carry on. And well, that's something that Elvis is wrestling with here in this nursing home and other patients are wrestling with here in this nursing home as well. But then also is a dead person who just can't die. And so instead of going on to some nice afterlife is stuck in what is some kind of, of of torment here. And this is another fear that Elvis is having. And so on that level, I mean, this is the perfect monster to have in this nursing home. And this is the part of this story that really just makes me want to to slow clap at, at, at Lansdale at what he's accomplished here. Yeah, it's really, it's really astonishing. I mean, this is the textbook example. You mentioned earlier too that we might not have come across a better monster in in, in what we've read. Uh, this is like the textbook example of how you do monster as metaphor. I, I I can't think of a better example. Certainly not in a lot of what we've covered. And it's because of the the kind of tightness of Lansdale's language, even though you know we kind of uh, it didn't suit us as as readers. But it's there. The work was put into this story, and uh, that's where I want to go next. A little bit is back to this uh, aesthetic question, this these taste questions. And, you know, I wonder, Glenn, uh, if you felt as I did and felt as if maybe the author's voice intruded or took over what could have been a really tightly constructed character voice for Elvis, whether that kind of desire to be edgy to some degree or to rely on crassness. Um, was more front and center in the story than the development of the characters. And I think this this is a legitimate textual question. This isn't also a taste question because this story has interludes that describe the changing of night to day that also use this sort of language that we see from Elvis's perspective. And so was that maybe a part of something that just uh, rubbed against you, caused some friction in the text for you, was feeling that the author's voice was stronger than the character's voice. Um, and is that something that in other stories causes friction for you as a reader? I, I mean, the simple answer to this question, and I think it's a great question. The The simple answer to this question is, is yes. Yeah, this, this does get in the way for me, this type of authorial intrusion, right? The intrusion of the authorial voice here over the character voice. At least that's how it seemed to me. I haven't read any other Lansdale to know if this is always how he writes, but I will say that it really felt that way while I was reading. It felt like I'm reading a story by Joe Lansdale here, and he's going to make sure that I know that I'm reading a story by Joe Lansdale here. And I don't necessarily dislike this type of writing, right? Where the metaphors employed are a crass or, or lowbrow, maybe we might say. I don't necessarily dislike that. This is something that Stephen King does as well. It's something that Stephen King has become famous for. And honestly, this is even something that Hemingway is, is known for, right? Taking writing out of a kind of 
abstraction, right? Taking storytelling out of some kind of alternate reality, right? Where, where reality itself is actually never confronted and, and moving it to a lower plane, really humanizing human characters or, or, or making, making stories mundane in the banal details of our lives. And so, you know, there's a trajectory of that in the 20th century and 20th century Anglophone literature that I'm certainly not opposed to. I quite like Stephen King. I adore Hemingway. But this, I think for me, just is one step too far with all of the profanity and the focus on on genitals, essentially, that is to me that does to me then feel like it's artificial. In some way, it actually kind of prevented me, I think, as you're suggesting, Brandon, from getting at the core of the character, a character I was super interested in. It's something that happens to me when I watch like a horror movie and the it seems like the point of the movie is in, you know, showing gore or nudity or, you know whatever is it seems as though the creation the the creative impulse um put something front and center so you kind of miss what's going on in the story if you're a little bit in shock uh from coming across these things you didn't expect and this is not so this is not the case with Lansdale for me in this story where he's using these shock tactics to cover a thin premise or a thin story construction that that's not the issue at all. But still, for me, it's the same. I had that same sort of readjustment where I had to kind of look a little deeper to see what's going on because the stuff that shocks us or appalls us or disgusts us is going to take up the largest cognitive load, right? And and to me, this is this can be used to great effect in horror or in contemporary writing and literature, as you suggested. But I think what didn't... I think this story might have worked a little better for me if we didn't get the authorial intrusion in those uh, day to night sequences. Yeah, I agree completely. But I, you know, as we said earlier, there are going to be people who love this story principally for exactly that voice. And, uh, you know, listeners who who don't like stories that you and I adore. So just to remind people that this is yeah. this really is just a matter <laughs> this, of our, this, of our taste. Yeah. yeah, this is not a moral or objective judgment, and th- this is fun to investigate because I, I don't think we've ever been so explicit about our tastes before. I have one more question, and since you brought up Stephen King, this will relate to that style of horror. This is a big, broad question about. Um, something that I think is going to strike at the heart of my taste differences and aesthetic differences uh, with this story and maybe yours as well. But what is the utility of relying on the use of disgust as an aesthetic mode in, in horror? You know, How often does that work for you? But more importantly, why do you think it works so well for so many people? Yeah, squeamishness, I guess, right? That there is something unsettling. I mean, there's definitely something deeply unsettling about bad stuff happening to our bodies, whether it's some external force damaging our bodies or something internal malfunctioning about our bodies, right? We are, uh, though you and I work pretty hard to forget it, we are embodied people. And, you know, (laughs) we have a fear of of things happening to our bodies. And of course, uh, we all will have individual proclivities to that. You know, some people really just can't stand eye stuff. Some people really can't stand teeth stuff or foot stuff or you know whatever it might be and and you know there's a squeamishness there that really works if what you're trying to do is make people uncomfortable to viscerally feel the the discomfort element of your horror i you know i think this is the sort of language that can really serve you serve you well there and this is definitely something that you know Stephen King has been a really big champion of those tend not to be my favorite king stories or novels and tend not to be my favorite passages in king's work but nonetheless they are effective and this story is effective with them too yeah absolutely i think that's a, a tremendous answer well brandon something i have been eager to talk about regarding this story is the movie because I have never seen the movie and uh, just it's the middle of the semester. So I was not going to have time to watch it, but you have done that homework for me. So I would like to hear you tell me about the movie. Yeah, I got the movie out of the library. I used to own a copy and I, you know, watched it 
once I think in my twenties, probably uh, in a distracted sort of way, and then was like, I don't think I'm going to watch this again. Well, little did I know we'd be having this conversation, you know, 15 years later or whatever. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I got the movie out of the library. Um, I rewatched it. It stars Bruce Campbell and Ossie Davis. Bruce Campbell's Elvis. Ossie Davis is uh, JFK. They are awesome as characters. The movie is, if you've read the story and loved it, a must-see, right? Because it is one of the best straight adaptations I've ever seen. There's very, very little um, creative interpretation going on. The dialogue is put directly into the script. Uh, The movie adds a scarab so that Bruce Campbell can have some classic you know, Bruce Campbell moments fighting a, a scarab with a bedpan. Um, but yeah, you get the movie translates almost exactly from the story to the screen. And um, once again, it wasn't my taste, but if you like this story, I think you'd really like the movie. You'd like to see the way they portray all of it. It's quite good. And of course, you get the hero shot with JFK and. Elvis in their final uniforms uh, taking on the mummy, which is super cool. So yeah, again, it's a good movie. It's well made. It's extremely low budget, um, but it only needs to take place in one location rather than the day and night scenes that uh, are the authorial interjection to the uh, story they have two undertakers coming to pick up all the dead bodies and they have a little, you know, back and forth every 15 minutes or so or 20 minutes however often the bodies drop so do i recommend it yeah if you like this story absolutely see the movie there's no reason not to yeah this movie was uh a real cult hit right i mean it came out in 2002 it was really just meant to be a a b quality movie right it was you know for people who like that type of horror movie which includes includes me and you as well you and i have hosted (laughs) a lot of scary movie nights watching you know b horror movies that no one coming to our scary movie night has ever heard of but this one really took off this got a lot of critical acclaim and then also became a real you know cult classic with audiences i i totally missed it because uh what was happening while i was in undergrad which was something i was doing while i also had a full-time job at a bookstore and probably saw one movie. I guess I saw two movies a year during those years. And that was because I was going to see Lord of the Rings films with Jay and also Star Wars prequel movies with with Jay. Otherwise did not see movies. So I've never I've never watched this one. But you know, even though we have said that this story was not to our taste, I still think I would like to find a chance to 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 watch it. I just 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 didn't happen this this week. But it's going on my list. Yeah, it's. I think it's a fun B movie, and it would be a fun, uh, scary movathon movie for sure. I mean, for me, the Hall of Famers of the you know scary movathon movies are like uh, Phantasm and uh, Sleepaway Camp and stuff. Yes, like that. <laughs> you know? uh, th- those to me are like top tier. I this this mo- the movie works as well as the story does, and so if this is your jam, like like I said, yeah absolutely watch it. And if you're curious about adaptations, this is a great place to start as well, because it's a really straight down the middle adaptation. And if you're interested in thinking about how do I adapt a a 25 page story into an hour and a half long movie, this is one to study because they do it right and they do it well. This is going to be a perfect second movie, right? For Scary Movie Night, where you've watched something that is genuinely scary and frightening. That's the first movie. No one wants to go home after that. So you put this one on, people can have a little more to drink and then feel okay going home. Like all is right in the the world. falling asleep, yeah. You're right, exactly. That's that's the idea there. Well, before we go, Brandon, I think we should also talk about Elvis a little bit. Because I think there is also, as we've, I think, alluded to, but not maybe directly said, there's a way in which you and I are not the target audience of this story, which is to say that much of the story hinges around people who are not necessarily invested in, but at least have been bombarded with the culture of Elvis sightings and JFK sightings, these conspiracies that these iconic people from the middle part of the 20th century uh, didn't really die, right? These two figures who had untimely and uh, tragic deaths, didn't really die. But you and I are too young for that, right? This is not a not something that we were wrapped up in. I remember my parents being fairly, you know, 
I shouldn't say that my parents were wrapped up in this, but it was something that, you know, they might have talked about with their friends at dinner parties. And certainly my dad really loved Elvis and that sort of thing. But so I just wonder, Brandon, do you have a lot of experience even just with Elvis as a musician? Do you listen to Elvis music very much? Have you gone through an Elvis phase at any point in your life? No, I never have. Uh, I think, you know, I've had, uh, you know, friends who were, you know, when my, when I was coming of age that were, uh, my father's age and stuff, you know, that were, uh, would try to mentor me or get me into music and, you know, just be, in a, you know, a nice male friend for a, for a young boy coming of age. And I think one of them tried to get me into the, into Elvis, but it never stuck. The Beatles were always more my, my jam. And I guess that's even kind of a decade after the height of Elvis's um, mainstream pop music success, though he had that resurgence in the 70s and so forth. But yeah, even Boslerman's recent movie, I just watched the trailer for, um, it didn't, I like Boslerman's bombastic style from time to time. It just didn't draw me in. And I'm just like, I'm just, I'm not, this middle part of the 20th century iconography, I'm so far removed from it that. It's even hard for me to imagine that kind of iconography being such a big deal at all, because it's just not really a part of our culture anymore, or at least not a part of the culture that I participate in. That iconography still exists. You see it for Trump everywhere, maybe to some degree, you know, Taylor Swift or something like that. If she died, you know, people would be looking for her in Acme or whatever, you know, maybe, maybe (laughs) she's still around. But yeah, I, I just, I can't imagine that level of, investment in uh, wanting a person who has passed tragically to still be alive and to wish they were living out some secret better life without all the the media crazies around them. Yeah, certainly not someone I, I don't know, right? Someone who's not, you know, a friend or a family member who I, I miss or something like that. Yeah, just that there's a cultness to it that you, as you alluded to, Brandon, that, yeah, it was just not something that I've ever... I've ever felt or participated in, even when Kurt Cobain died during my formative years. And actually, I guess if this story were going to be rewritten for today, this would be Kurt Cobain. And I, I don't know who the JFK character would be, but uh, well, JFK Jr., maybe, I guess, actually. Certainly. Yes, but, absolutely. <laughs> in fact, someone please go write that story. I would I would read that one. Yeah, that would be that's a that would be a really cool writing prompt and update uh, for this one. But yeah, I don't know. So much of our media landscape has changed, too, that you weren't thinking about photo manipulation and all this stuff. You know, it was totally possible that uh, both Marilyn Monroe could appear on a piece of toast and Elvis was caught uh, at, you know, uh, some amusement park like Knobles or something like that. You know, it's just that was a part of the media landscape and it just doesn't exist anymore. Well, on that note, now that we're talking about toast, that's always a good time to end the show. <laughs> Once again, I'm Brandon Buddha. And I'm Glenn McDorman. As always, you can find us and our other creative projects at claytemplemedia.com. And please do join us on Patreon at patreon.com slash claytemplemedia. You'll gain access to our episode about cocoons by Thomas Ligotti, along with nearly, maybe even more than a hundred other bonus episodes. Next time, we will be back with Born of Man and Woman by Richard Matheson, our first Richard Matheson story. Very excited about that. And until then, we greet you and say farewell. <laughs>